economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, so Justin's going to kind of lead us through the First Amendment, the Second Amendment we hold near and dear here in Kansas, at least. Probably not going to talk about that one, but the first one is the real weapon, I think, that makes society a place that we want to live and freedom that we enjoy. So, Justin, what's the First Amendment all about? All right, so today I think we should talk about the First Amendment, and in particular, the First Amendment and freedom of speech, and whether or not those two, you know, protection of the First Amendment just is all there is to defending freedom of speech. So maybe to start off, it would be a good idea to actually just read through the First Amendment since it's pretty short. And it's always good. Like, I'm surprised when I read it, like, well, this is pretty well written. Like, you read parts of the Constitution, and like, well, why didn't I... And I, maybe I did read it in fourth grade, and I just don't remember. So. Yeah. And also, just before we even read it, a lot of people think First Amendment, okay, freedom of speech. But there's a lot more going on in the First Amendment than just freedom of speech. So it reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So having gone through it once, one of the things that we might notice right off the bat is that freedom of speech is kind of in the middle there. And before freedom of speech, we talk about freedom of religion, and in particular, not prohibiting the exercise of religion or respecting the establishment of religion. So there's a negative and a positive clause there. And then right after we get the freedom of speech. Yeah, like, expand that negative positive distinction just for a sec for our listeners. So it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, which I think most people take to mean something like we're not going to have a state religion. And also Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise with the thereof referring to religion. So Congress is not going to make a law prohibiting any religions either. They will get neither the government's sanction nor their blessing. Right. Uh, the so, negative positive yeah. is kind of do this or don't do this. And it, they're both stated there in regard to, to that. We're not going to favor any or pr- right. more prohibit right. any, okay. any Great. either. And then it's just or abridging the freedom of speech. And then it goes on to or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So one of the things that we should note about the First Amendment is, I mean, it literally is just a restriction on the scope of federal power, right? And the reason I bring this up is because today we hear a lot about freedom of speech and what freedom of speech is and why we ought to have it, if we ought to have it. These things kind of all seem to be on the table recently. People are arguing about them. And Sometimes we hear things like, well, freedom of speech is guaranteed under the First Amendment, and 
we should be clear about what the First Amendment actually guarantees. And then we should also say maybe what, what do people mean when they talk about freedom of speech? And is that the same thing that the First Amendment guarantees? Um, and so maybe we should just, it might be useful to just kind of go around the table here and kind of try to spitball a definition of what people mean by freedom of speech, because I think <laughs> that isn't really well defined in our culture right now. And it ought to be if we're having that discussion. Well, I'll throw the first spitball, but it's almost not necessarily defining it, but the, you can't cry fire in a theater. Like, okay, well you got, you can say whatever you want, but you can't make it so that, you know, harm is caused. And of course that's what Trump is being accused of with the, with the capital deal. And so that, becomes kind of wishy-washy. But to me, when I hear freedom of speech, I immediately kind of went to the exceptions. And that's what I think lately, a lot of people are hanging their hat on the exceptions. Like, well, yeah, you can say anything you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Well, that's not quite right. If you say something that somebody is finds offensive, but rather that it's dangerous to them with the, with the fire in the theater comments. So that was the first thing that came to mind for me. From my view, this may not be a definition so much as like a clarification which is that I tend to look at freedom of speech having to be rooted in, and by having, I mean, it like biological necessity, it can only be the case that free speech really has to be a defense of property rights. I don't think any freedom of speech can exist outside of that. And there have been several cases about this, and maybe we can get into some of them. But ultimately, if you have the right to say whatever you want, but you don't have the right to any property, you actually don't have the right to say whatever you want, because speaking requires property you have to have property in order to speak. You have to have ownership of yourself. You have to have ownership of some venue, whether that's your own house, whether that's, you know, you control a place in the, the public. And so ultimately, all sorts of speech in order to exist have to come from freedom. And that means, by the way, it's not free, or from property rather, it's not free, it had, there's an opportunity cost. And so I just wanted to, at the very get-go, say that free does not mean costless. Government has no obligation, nor could they give us costless speech. They only have a duty not to indirectly interfere. Oh, the economist always brings property rights, but that's that's interesting. I mean, so you've got a necessity for like physical space, like you were saying, right? Where can I stand? Where can I do it? We talk about the public square. You know, do you have access to the public square? Or do you not? Do you have access to your computer? Do you have access to Facebook or not? Or have you been kicked off? So all those kind of interesting things are all relevant to property rights. And it's likewise the property rights of, Facebook or Twitter to kick you off, right? But it's still property rights are a key ingredient is the main thing you're saying. Yeah. Which might go to both the people that want to speak their mind and also the people that might control different pieces of the property channel. Yeah. And so I know I fogged up Justin's original intent with getting us to do definitions, but I, I always <laughs> have to clarify this. Thomas Maybe Sowell, we'll circle around it. Thomas Sowell's really good point on free speech is that government cannot or be forced to, or does it try to provide inexpensive speech? That's not a role of government. It's not in the constitution. It couldn't be in the constitution because oh. government doesn't control how expensive things are because they cannot provide inexpensive speech. The only freedom of speech that they can allow for is speech that's taken on at your own expense which I think nowadays sometimes people say that that's not free because there's a consequence towards you. But any sort of speech that uses property, if government controls that property, then they control the speech. And that's just a fact. Yeah, I like that. Free versus freedom. That word free not being costless. All right, I'm with you. 
All right. So nobody's defined anything. So Justin, <laughs> let's hear Resident philosopher. Let's hear you give us a definition or dance around it. One of the things that I think I liked about Peter's discussion is that he elucidates a kind of approach that you hear to discussions about what rights are. And that might be, you could define that as, and correct me if I'm misstating the point that you had, which is something like maybe all rights are a base property rights, or at least all speech rights in this case. Yes. In this case, our property rights. Yes, I, right? I, I would agree with that. And to state more succinctly, I'll steal Alshin, who's, a, a, again, another economist, but he's a better speaker. I think if I were defining free speech using this in the background, I would say that free speech is speech that has no restriction or, sorry, uh, that government gives no restriction to against, against individuals using resources other than their own property for the purposes of communication. And so that means that government can restrict you from speaking if you're trying to use property that's not yours. But if you're using property that is yours, the state would not be able to restrict you. That to me is freedom of speech. Okay, great. Because what I think I would like to postulate here is that what we have been discussing and what Peter's kind of outlining is a kind of political rights-based approach to speech and What's interesting is that if we try to define, you know, your political right to speech, one of the ways we can do that is in terms of property, right? But if we now take the problem from the other end and we say something like, well, how have people traditionally argued for the freedom of speech in that how have people argued that this is something that's desirable? You know, if we want to look at that, maybe one of the stronger defenses you find in John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, right? And, you know, he makes this claim, if all of mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. So this defense of freedom of speech is a defense of dialogue right? It is saying that the best way to combat ideas that are false is to subject them to the crucible of debate and to say the reason we want freedom of speech is so that the, you can't have a kind of tyranny of the majority to shut out ideas that aren't popular, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, now, notice he doesn't say the state would be more justified in silencing that one person than he. He says mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he. So this is a defense of freedom of speech. And it seems here that what Mill is defending isn't a kind of, you know, political rights-based approach to freedom of speech, but more a defense of a kind of culture of freedom of speech, where we want to tolerate people who have ideas that are different from us, to be able to speak those ideas so that we can have a dialogue with those people. And, you know, we all believe things that are false. We don't know what things those are or else you wouldn't believe them, right? In belief that the common good will be served through that mechanism. The, yeah, the, the only way to combat bad ideas is to have those ideas be in discussion with good ideas, right? Now, what's interesting is I think in contemporary culture, what we're seeing is that this kind of culture of free speech and this 
idea that all there is to freedom of speech is freedom of to say what you want on the property that you own, those two things can actually come into conflict, which is, I think, what we're seeing play out right now. And so what's interesting is that both people, both sides are claiming the mantle of freedom of speech. Yeah. And so maybe that's a good place to stop. I don't know if, if yeah. either of you have anything to say. No, I think that's a great uh, cliffhanger to bring us into that. I, I think I see that a lot where both people are trying to justify their actions, claiming the same argument, uh, even just anti-fascism, one side, the left and the right are claiming the same thing, that one is the other, and they're making the same argument, which seems crazy almost that they can do that. But I think it's because some of these core foundational principles that we're really trying to drill down on today, I think with talking about the First Amendment, aren't really fully appreciated and and understood. All right, with that, we'll head into a break and we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith and their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to the student's experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have special student uh, programs that go on. Upcoming is our Social Dilemma movie night where we'll have oh, usually around a group of about 100 students and get to talk about some issues with Facebook and Twitter and how they may or may not be sculpting our minds and getting us to think what they want us to think. So we'll have some discussions on that with our professors and and have a great night of fun with that movie. So if you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast or want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right. So before the break here, we got into... Details of the First Amendment, and now I think we want to see some applications today. But before we do, I don't know, Peter, you had some criticism of Mill. So while we're still on historical items, what are you thinking on Mill? Yeah, and so I do want to preface, it's not just Mill, or not Mill specifically. I think this is general to the people, and so like Milton is another one who does this, who argue for this free speech absolutism. And it's by their own grounds. And so a lot of times these people are arguing that essentially there's a market for ideas, right? This is in the background of all this free speech stuff. And in the market for ideas, people fight and good ideas rise to the top and you have to beat bad ideas with good ideas. And people are smart enough to select the good ideas after enough competition and all this. But weirdly enough, in the market for goods and services, these people don't believe the same thing. And so Mill believes in a significant number of regulations on goods and services and how they can be provided. Same with Milton. And so this is a weird paradox is why is it that like consumers are informed in the market for speech and able to come to the right conclusions if there's just enough debate and we just let free speech out. But in the market for goods and services, they're dumb enough that they can get tricked. You know, evil businessmen are tricking them here and there. And Ronald Coase presents both this puzzle and an interesting argument, which is the reason that this free speech idea, I'm not arguing against free speech here, but pointing out this hypocrisy maybe. Coase's argument is there maybe the reason that this free speech is considered so sacred is because the people who write about the market for a speech are the ones involved in the market for speech. 
And so these high class nobles who think that their market is so important and so good, well, it must be that in the end, the truth wins. And, you know, we're so smart, we're enlightened, we're going to come to it. But in the peasants market for goods and services, mm. where you've got average everyday blue collar Joes, well, you know, those people are going to get tricked. And so we need to help them by regulating. And so I don't know that I would say I'm against this idea of free speech absolutism, but I hope that the same people apply that same principle to the market for goods and services, because I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be. You know, if competition wins in one place, I think it wins in the other place. But this provides an interesting dilemma, which is, I think that, like Justin said before the break, these two spheres, freedom of your property and freedom of absolute speech, I think could interfere with one another. Well, I would uh, add that our quick turn to government, that somebody said something that's hurting somebody and let's shut them down or, or whatever, let's uh, consider this, doesn't allow the competitive market in the speech market, if you will, to correct itself. So a bad idea, a stupid idea, dangerous idea or whatever doesn't have enough time to be digested and figured out that, well, that's dumb. We wouldn't do that anyway. Now, you know, are they making rightful claims that a person in Trump's position with rationally ignorant voters that we talked about on our previous podcast on people just uh, not wanting to be informed because it isn't in their best interest? You know, does a person who wield that kind of followers and power in a place where they should be shut down? Obviously, some people are arguing yes. And and others would say, let let the people figure it out. I don't know. So I do have an answer for Peter about when Mill is right and when Mill is wrong, because you charged him with hypocrisy, right? So my answer for when Mill is right is when he agrees with me and when he disagrees, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I do think you are right to point out that that is an inconsistency in Mill, right? And I gave Mill's argument for why we ought to have free speech. And it's a very broad argument, right? That, you know, the only way to combat bad speech, bad speech is with better speech. But Mill actually does provide this proviso at the end of that argument where he says the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. And this is taken to be what's called the harm principle. And this principle from Mill is actually invoked a lot when people try to regulate speech. Russ mentioned earlier in the podcast this shouting crier, uh, shouting crier, <laughs> crying fire uh, in a crowded theater, right? Which is supposed to be actually not be protected by the First Amendment. I think in, it's like Brandenburg versus Ohio or something. They, they narrowed it down, which is uh, it actually has to be direct incitement to violence, which is the criterion on which you can prevent speech. If the speech is a direct incitement to violence. Now, Directly inciting violence certainly does fit Mill's definition of causing harm to others, right? Which might be something that, you know, if Mill is saying we can restrict people's freedom, if that freedom is going to cause harm to others, certainly directly inciting violence counts. But a lot of people read Mill more broadly and say, well, surely directly inciting violence isn't the only thing that can harm others. I don't know if you have ever been harmed by speech before. I know I have. When I was, uh, you know, before I moved out here, out to Kansas, I lived in San Francisco, you know, with, and I was dating my ex 
couple ex-girlfriends ago, right? <laughs> and one thing she said to me, she said a couple things that really harmed me. Once she <laughs> asked me which actress I thought she looked like, and so I gave a really great example. I said, who do you think I look like? And she said, who's that guy who puts on lipstick in Happy Gilmore? Said, <laughs> Steve Buscemi? <laughs> yeah. So that obviously wounded oh me gosh. deeply. Uh, but then, you know, she actually ended up breaking up with me, right? And when she said, I, you know, I don't think we should, this is over, right? That really hurt me. It harmed me. Should she be, you know, prohibited from breaking up with me because it's going to harm me? Should, should we have thrown her in jail for saying that I looked like Steve Buscemi? <laughs> yes. Uh, but look, how broadly do we want to interpret harm? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's at the heart of the issue. When, when you were speaking about that, what came to mind to me is that you have a property right. And so, yes, speech shouldn't be harmed. But if it does harm, it actually has to have some damages done. So speaking, I think in general, speaking the words isn't enough. You actually have to go to a court of law and say, I was violated. Here's the dam monetary damages or otherwise that were done. If we, you know, usually punitive damages wouldn't be involved in a case like that. And so this guy owes me and judge, I'd like to have, you know, $20,000 for the damages that were done by the speech that was done. And they have to provide evidence that they were harmed. Right. So to me, as you were saying, the just creating harm or doing harm or saying something that may harm somebody isn't enough. If we believe in a system of property rights, it, it, the damages actually have to be done. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is the harm that you're talking about is violence, right? A kind of like physical harm, not the kind of harm that, you know, I can suffer when I'm slighted by one of you. So. <laughs> to play devil's advocate here though, and I think this is reasonable, is if you're selling a house and whenever someone comes up to the house, I say, oh man, like you're like, I'm sitting on the sidewalk. I'm not on their property. And I say, you're in for it now. Like these people had 70 dogs at one point. Like it's abs an absolute disaster. They've, they've covered it all up and you got the Febreze going, but it's a terrible house. If, if that causes the house to lose some value, am I not damaging their property just as much as if I smashed their window or if I, you know, say that I'm going to beat up anybody who moves into the house. I mean, isn't this all damaging someone's property, taking away value that they've created? I guess as the real estate guy here for years anyway, I had my li listeners, I had my real estate license for about 20 years or so. That is something we want is information out there. And so it'd be on the onus of the potential buyer to verify those claims or not, if it was not right. If it was decent information, we want them to know about that. Now we actually do lean on the government for that information transfer, which is a little off topic, although not completely maybe because of the way you characterized it, but the seller disclosure statement, the seller has to list all the stuff that's there. If they didn't claim about the smell in the basement that will never go away or something, you know, the water, the basement floods in the spring, then the new buyer has a rightful claim against the seller. So my point is having that type of information it's still on the buyer. The buyer's missing. If, if the person was lying, the buyer has an opportunity to check that out for themselves. What if instead of lying, I said, and you could confirm that I was going to every day outside the new owner's house, I was going to hold a sign saying that this is a terrible person. This person should be thrown in jail. Public sidewalk, a sign, you know, I've got my freedom of speech. This mm -hmm. harms them, doesn't it? And, and it harms their property. That house is less valuable if I threaten all possible buyers with that. Yep. Choose your neighbors wisely. <laughs> So, so I like what Peter, I think, is getting at, which is it's actually kind of hard to denote and to draw this 
bright line with what we consider harms or even violence that we uh, we think is ought to be prohibited or you know uh, even could prohibit right but I would like to kind of bring our discussion back to the possible conflicts that can arise between saying that you are defending freedom of speech by defending property rights and saying that you are defending freedom of speech by saying you want different viewpoints to be heard, right? Because the second is what Mill is asserting. Mm -hmm. And the first is this kind of First Amendment view of freedom of speech. And one of the things that we've seen not just with Trump being kicked off social media, right? But let's look at the past year and how discussions about coronavirus have been treated on things like social media, where Twitter's policy has been to remove any content or flag any content that is at odds with what the WHO is saying currently. And there are a bunch of problems with this as a policy, right? One of which is the WHO said a bunch of different things. So things that the WHO, you know, if you could retweet something that the WHO said in March of 2020, and it would violate Twitter's rules in December of 2020 because <laughs> the WHO had changed course, right? But mm-hmm. what the bigger problem might be is that these two different interpretations of the value of freedom of speech can come into conflict here, right? Because by protecting Twitter's right to unilaterally decide what they can allow on their platform, when Twitter decides that they want to restrict the speech that's acceptable on their platform, we either have to say they are allowed to do it because it's their property, or we have to say in the interest of hearing more speech and of hearing diverse viewpoints, we want to restrict what they can do with their property. And that seems like a dilemma. So my point isn't to say that, look, there's an easy answer to this dilemma for the same reason that I don't think there's a really easy answer to the problems that Peter was raising. It's, I actually think these are really difficult problems and that they don't have a super easy answer. So maybe I'll throw that out to you guys. Do you want my easy answer? Yes. (laughs) No, this isn't an easy answer so much as it is a description of what an answer might look like. And so it actually is still very difficult, I think. But the way that I think these two can be reconciled, because I actually think they can, is that there would need to be in our world a cultural change to have people value ideas and freedom of speech in the way that Mill values ideas and freedom of speech. Yeah, that one person thing was a pretty strong argument. Yes. And there's no way any most people agree with that. No, no, there's not. (laughs) But if everyone did... What could happen instead of taking one way that we could overturn t- Twitter's regulation of people's speech is we could take away their right to use their capital the way they want. We could say you have to use your capital as a platform for everyone, not just the people you like. So that would be taking property, just like Justin just said. Instead, what we could do is if we change the culture such that everyone agreed with Mill here and everyone agreed both that the market for goods and services can produce good results and the market for speech and ideas can produce good results, well, then maybe people could say, okay, Twitter, you could feel free to regulate speech if you want to, but if you do that, we are all going to leave, even if it's speech that we disagree with. In that case, Twitter still has its property right to police speech, sort of, in a way, but, you know, in a more true sense, they don't because people have taken away their consumer dollars. The market has spoken. And so if we, if we could, and the, the question would be how, but if we could change the culture in such a way that people respect differing viewpoints and want those to be able to be heard, and maybe the bad ones be squashed, then we could solve this dilemma without abridging something like property rights or something like that. 
I think culture change is the most pie in the sky thing I've ever heard you say since we yes. hired you. Yeah. Let's just change the culture. Well, I, I wouldn't even say let's change it. I'm saying that if you want to solve this dilemma, I think that's the only way. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me just in the course of history, the only thing that's ever had decent attempts at changing culture has been a super big shock to the economy. Yeah, whether I think that's be, right. Whether it be war, whether revolution, you know, otherwise. I love your idea, and I, and I think that's what part of the Gorton Institute is all about: is, is getting those ideas out and attempting to change some minds. Like, yeah. as far as our mission, I would say, let's not go with the outset of changing the culture. Let's go with the outset of changing a few minds, yes. and maybe that'll have some multiplicative forces going on. And slowly but surely, us among others will start to have a little bit of a, a cultural change so but yeah no I, I agree with you it is pie in the sky this is not necessarily a, a, a call to arms that you, you need to go out and do this because like I said on paper it's very easy to say but it would actually be a very complicated solution and there's just so many people right now that don't believe it like you yeah. said that I mean they, they think they're in the majority and it's okay the majority should be shutting down the speech of minority isn't that I mean that's kind of the sense that I have of our culture right yeah, now. Yeah, I, I would say that the viewpoint of Mill is like something that maybe even 1% of the population believes in, or like yeah. 5% at most. But even like Republicans probably wouldn't say that this is, even though, you know, they're the ones being censored on Twitter for the most part right now, I don't even think they would say that this million approach is a good Now, approach. the 80-20 rule might apply here, that if we can change 20% of the population, get it up from 1% to 20%, and those are the leaders and the movers and the shakers, the 80% would start to fall in line with that. Yeah, and markets nicely aren't always like this, you know, you need 50% sort of thing. Yeah. You know, 20% of a market might be enough to bring mm -hmm. a company to its knees. So, yeah. it, you know, it's it's not totally impossible. Yeah. So, Justin, this, this might even be another podcast, but since you are dealing with truth claims and the philosophical nature of truth and whatever, but I hear with, I heard an NPR thing where they're talking to either Jack Dempsey or, or one of the social media, like, are you going to take down stuff that's false and only provide the truth or something? And I'm like, wow, that sounds like a really tall order. Like, how do you verify that what was said is true or not? And then I hear NPR's also, this new thing is, well, that's a fact-free opinion. You know, Ted Cruz said a fact-free opinion of this or whatever. And so they're kind of throwing this out there like it could be a lie, a fact-free opinion. I kind of like the statement, actually, a, a fact-free opinion. There's a lot of fact-free opinions going on and, you know, not providing evidence of our work. So how do you verify whether something's true or not? I don't know. Any general comments on, on truth in our culture, Justin? I think one of the problems that you're highlighting is that you're listening to NPR. <laughs> you know what? I I turned it off the other day. I, I did change the station. I, I've been kind of a long time because I like to listen. Yeah. And I think an important part of free speech is I do like to listen to both sides. I honestly yes. do listen to yep. all kinds of media. Oh, that's great. I'm not just, you know, Rush Limbaugh 24-7. I listen to all kinds of media because I want to learn what people are thinking. And I think that's an important part. But yeah, but in a serious take on what you said, because I think it's important, this idea that the media can be the arbiter of truth, to me is and not only the arbiter, but then the enforcer. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's just absolutely laughable. And upside down. Yeah. Truth doesn't, in my opinion, need media gatekeepers. Um, you know, 
what needs a media gatekeeper is, of course, some kind of as an agenda, right? Yeah. Agendas need gatekeepers. The truth doesn't. Yeah. And once you start telling me that, you know, you are going to be the gatekeeper. And another thing that I've really noticed a lot lately is editorializing in what's supposed to be a just, you know, front page news article. They'll say, so and so falsely said, blah, 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 blah. And whenever I read that, I go, mm-hmm. why, why are you putting all of these? Uh, why are you editorializing this? This just reeks of you trying to put your spin on something. And I mean, it's obviously what they're trying to do, but it seems so blatant to me. And actually it seems so at cross purposes with what anyone who is, you know, competently trying to spin an agenda would do. That it seems like somebody losing control of a narrative rather than somebody actually enforcing it. Yeah, journalism and reporting has been dead for quite a while. Everybody, everything's got a little op-ed editorial spin on it. And unfortunately, you know, it doesn't stop with journalism. There's an attempt to do like scientific gatekeeping now. Like, you know, one thing that Twitter is doing is they're trying to say, oh, we're defaulting to scientists at WHO. Like these are the experts. (laughs) The problem with defaulting to scientists is you can't really say many things that are very important for day-to-day people when you only look at the science. And what I mean by that is, Science can tell you if a mask is effective, but it can't tell you if you should wear a mask. That's not a question that like you can test empirically. Should people wear masks? You know, that's a question of values and philosophy. That's not a question of trade-offs of other sorts. Yeah, and trade-offs too. So it passes through multiple filters, economic filters, philosophical filters. And anytime anybody ever tells you should, that's not something that can be adjudicated with science. You cannot answer should questions with, with scientific answers. And so I'm okay with gatekeeping science. Well, I'm not okay with gatekeeping scientific facts, but you know, that's one thing and we can talk about that. But anytime a scientist says what you, if I make a post, you should not wear a mask. That's something that's not scientifically true or false. That's a normative statement uh, and you can disagree with it, but it's not something that you can prove me wrong on. I, that's a ridiculous idea. It's like scientists forgetting exactly what their field is. Yeah. I think it's kind of, you should wear a mask, but really that's a shortened statement, maybe from what they're really trying to say, which is you should wear a mask if you care about the general public. And there's, there's this all their long conditional yeah, statement. If, if you assume the set of values to be true, yes, then you should do this. Exactly. And then, sure. That's a exactly. true statement, but yeah. you've smuggled the values. You've smuggled the values. Yes. Yeah. So real quickly to tie this back to free speech, yeah. because we might also tie this back to, you know, one of the things that people are trying to outlaw right now is laws against hate speech. Yeah. Right. And what, what people often say is that though the first amendment protects free speech, it shouldn't protect hate speech. Right. (laughs) Now there is no legal definition of hate speech for the same reason there isn't a legal definition of funny speech. Right. Right. Uh, Because (laughs) it's impossible to objectively define. Right. And, you know, the good old Larry Flint had a saying, which is free, the First Amendment doesn't protect speech that you like. The First Amendment protects speech that you hate. Mm. That is the point of the First That's Amendment. That's the whole point. Right? Now, I would also say that we could apply that line of reasoning to what's currently going on, where these people are saying, well, it shouldn't protect statements that are false. Right. And, you know, let me don my Larry Flint hat here and say the First Amendment doesn't protect speech that you think is true. It protects speech that you think is false. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah. Mill, I think, in his defense of free speech, that is explicitly the kind of speech that he is saying you ought to be submitted to. Your, uh, your belief system, insofar as you want it to be correct, you ought to engage with beliefs that you think are false, too. Yeah. Maybe I'll give a little ray of sunshine as we wrap this up. Maybe all of this divisiveness and truth claims and false claims being thrown out will slowly evolve into a culture of, I need to check this out for myself and kind of take ownership of and not be swayed one direction or the other. Uh, maybe there's something that of cultural change that'll kind of come out of the, the mess that we seem to be in now. Yeah, the positive way to look at it is, as Justin mentioned earlier, it seems like this need to censor people quickly and, you know, ramp things up. It seems to be the results of people losing control of an agenda, not having control of an agenda. And so I, I do actually have a little bit of optimism here that I think the reason why there's a sudden censorship of ideas is that maybe people are getting ideas that people don't like now. Whereas, you know, the past 20 years or so, everyone had sort of a mainstream narrative. Now people are getting off of other people's comfortable paths. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, any other last closing comments? All right. So we are good. Thank you all for listening to this production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. Five-star ratings help us get into other people's ears and minds. So if you have the time to do that for us, we'd appreciate it. Otherwise, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks.